This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. On the podcast today, I'm joined by Mai Corlin, who is researcher at the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies in the University of Copenhagen. Mai will be talking about her new book, The Bishan Commune and the Practice of Socially Engaged Art in Rural China, which was published in 2020 by Paul Grave Macmillan. Mai's book, The Bishan Commune, examines the new rural reconstruction movement in Bishan village in Aohui province. She uses the Bishan Commune as a case study to explore the ways that art and culture can revive regional economics. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Mike Horlin, who have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Mai, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to begin um, by asking you about your background and research interests. What brought you to rural Anhui to study the Bishan Commune and socially engaged art practices? Yeah, um, it actually began uh, when I was doing my MA thesis and I was doing my MA thesis in China studies. And I was writing on Chinese documentary filmmaking and representation of demolition sites in uh, Chinese documentary films. And um, at that time, an artist called Oning, uh, he had done a film together with his then partner, Tao Fei, uh, about the demolition of Meishi Street in central Beijing. And uh, what Oning did was that he gave the camera to one of the residents of the street that was being demolished. He was called uh, Zhang Jinli. And Zhang Jinli himself then filmed the process of the demolition of this uh, area in Beijing. Um, So I was really intrigued by this by this tendency to give the camera to the ones that you're filming and letting them film themselves. It was something that Wu Wenguang uh, who's uh, also a documentary filmmaker, he had also done uh, as part of this folk memory project. So I was sort of following this tendency already. Um, and then uh, I finished my MA thesis and everything was fine. And then owning in 2011, he made a notebook called The Bishan Commune, How to Start Your Own Utopia. Uh, and I was just 
very intrigued with this idea about an anarchist commune uh, in the countryside and this idea of art in, arts engagement with society. Um, so that was sort of, so I was initially following Oning and I sort of followed him from the city to the countryside at that time. Yeah. That's really fascinating that your um, correspondences with Oning go all the way back to your master's level and um, continue to develop and, and you continue to understand, you know, his, his larger projects within China and then how it led to Anhui. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about the Bishan project that, that Oning came to lead and what it means to uh, to be a radical rural intellectual in China. Yeah. Um, so the Bishan commune was built on this idea of creating an anarchist community of mutual aid in rural China. Um, and it was to be located in Bishan, which is a village in rural Anhui province in the southern part of Anhui province. And it's very close to uh, tourist attractions such as the Yellow Mountains and the UNESCO World Heritage Sites, Sidi and Hongchun. Um, so it's already, so it's like a very, it's a very beautiful place, but it's definitely still a place with some of the same issues that we see in the rest of, in other Chinese villages, like issues of depopulation and general lack of resources and opportunities. Um, but so the Bishan commune uh, wanted to create a community based on anarchist mutual aid uh, as a way to and, a way, and ways to create new relationship with local villagers and artists and authorities. Um, oh yeah, and so on the face of it, a quite radical project actually. And if you know just a little bit about China, you will know that this type of political project might be quite difficult to carry out in just about any place in China. Oh, yeah, and to your question about the radical rule uh, intellectuals um, and its relation to the Bishan commune. Um, when I talk about radical rule intellectuals in China, I refer to groups of people in rural China that are concerned with rural issues, with the rural-urban divide, with the lack of resources, and with the discrimination towards the rural populace, and, and many more issues connected to the rural areas. And these people are concerned with creating other social networks and other economic relationships than the ones uh, offered by the state. And of course, they approach this uh, matter in many different ways, and they are scattered across the countryside or in other French areas. But what I see is that they form, is, form these loosely organized networks of people and groups that gather and discuss these issues that are concerned with these issues, with these uh, rural issues, and they do so from the point of art and culture. Um, and so what I see is that they form oppositional practices, somewhat oppositional practices in situated in ideas of going to the people and they propose new methods of engagement in a rural, in the rural areas. Um, so they are attempting to revive a rural China that is perceived as under-prioritized in terms of government resources. Um, I would also like to add that it's wrong to assume that they are directly against the government I rather I see them as on a spectrum. So some are very clear in their opposition, some are very close with the government, and some realize that they have to collaborate with the government and then do so, but they still have but still but there will still be sort of critical parts of the project. So for instance, in the case of the Bishan commune, they proposed an anarchist utopia uh, based on mutual aid. So quite a quite radical idea. Um 
but at the same time they kept a close relationship to the local authorities and i think it this was really important in order for them to be in the village in the first place absolutely um could you talk talk more about how socially engaged art came to play a role in these um, rural intellectuals um, projects in, 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 in Bishan. Um, how do you conceptualize socially engaged art in China? Yeah, uh, if to, to just tie it up to the rural, uh, the radical rural intellectuals, most of them have a background in art or in art production or in film production. So they sort of take these resources that they have with them from, from an urban uh, art environment. They go back to the rural, rural areas and use these resources that they have from, um, from, from their previous background. Um, in terms of socially engaged art, perhaps uh, I should say that to begin with that, I see socially engaged art as a, the term socially engaged art as a placeholder for a variety of practices uh, concerned with society, community and relationships. So we could call it dialogical art or participatory art, or there are many different words to describe this practice. Um, and socially engaged art in China comes in many shapes and forms. So the specific kind of socially engaged art that I have been preoccupied with and that I look into in my book is long-term art projects that are involved with a particular community, village, or neighborhood. So what they do is that they promote smaller scale units, such as the commune, the autonomous youth, youth space, the farm, or the village. So it can be a geographical distinction but it can also be relational work within a particular community of people, such as uh, single moms in the city or in the rural areas or um, or between artists. So it can be like a, yeah, a ge geographical location, but it can also be amongst uh, similar people. <clears throat> and these projects, they base their artistic practice in the formation of reciprocal relationships with a local community. So they put enormous efforts into developing these uh, new relationships that can create the basis for a new community. And in my book, I've been probing into what these different kinds of relationships meant for the practice of the project. Um, so relationships can cover relationship to the local government and to fellow artists or to the villagers in a particular village. Uh, another thing that I think is important about these projects are the temporality. So they are usually, so long-term projects mean that they, they include many different kinds of events, many exchange, exchanges and collaborations take place. And this involves many different people, at, people uh, at many different times, and thus also many different kinds of relationships. So you cannot talk about one relationship to the authorities or one relationship to the local villagers. You'll have many different relationships. Um, so what long-term also means is that these projects can change and they do change. So because they respond to the peoples and communities and authorities involved. Um, and this we also saw with Bishan. So different villagers had different opinions of the Bishan commune, of what the Bishan commune should do or not do. And some of these ideas or points of critique were definitely included in the Bishan commune scheme. Um, another thing that I think is important when talking about long-term socially engaged art projects in China is that they are 
rarely directly critical of the government, but they are, but you would likely find that they are likely critical of neoliberal development issues. They are critical of a highly stressful society or critical of problematic divisions of resources and many more issues. So, and these are issues that you also find with socially engaged art projects in Europe or in America. Um, but in terms of uh, but in terms of the Chinese projects, they are definitely more closely aligned with government actors, and uh, the local government often helped them to settle in a given community. And this was even more the case with the Bichang Commune. And just to say a bit more about this, there are lots of reasons for this uh, relationship to the local uh, governments. Uh, generally, local governments see artists as a resource that they can tap into. Uh, and in this sense, some of the projects, they become tools for a local government to create a certain kind of development. Yeah, but in this book, I also think of these long-term socially engaged art projects as Trojan horses. Uh, and here I think of Lucy Lepar's idea of activist art as a Trojan horse. So many local governments invite in these projects and hope for economic development, but the projects also present opposition by trying to recalibrate existing social relationships and create reciprocal structures of care and exchange. So I think um, these project will, will, projects will look differently depending on which angle you look at them from. If you look at them from, from the government, relationship to the government or the relationship to the local villagers or the relationship to other artists. Thank you so much, Mai. It's um, so fascinating to hear about all these different spectrums and, and the relations that are really crucial um, to socially engaged art in China. Um, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned um, Owning's notebook, Bishan Commune, How to Start Your Own Utopia. Um, and I wanted to ask you more about this. Um, what are the imaginaries and discourses that surround artistic rule practices and, and that come out in this particular book? So... Owning's notebook from 2010, uh, I think I said 2011 in the beginning, but it was 2010. Uh, it was a draft version of the community that Owning imagined building in the village of Bishan in rural Anhui province. Uh, and he built this idea on two pillars, uh, on Kropotkin's anarchism and on the rural reconstruction movement of the 1920s in China. So where the anarchist commune was the ideal that owning was striving towards, uh, the rural reconstruction practices uh, were presented, presented as the means to get there. But basically what owning described in the notebook was that he wanted to build an anarchist community in Bishan and invite like-minded to come settle in the village. So Kropakin's notion of mutual aid played a central role in the utopia uh, and in the notebook owning presents mutual aid as the basis for this non-capitalist community economy through the exchanges of favors and skills. So in this utopia, there would be no leaders uh, and decisions will be taken at common meetings using consensus democracy. Um, I think it's important to note that as much as the notebook is about a specific geographical location, Bishan village, um, it is just as much as about the imaginary of something larger and less tangible. Like, in other words, the commune as a borderless, territorialist community of like-minded. Um, yeah. 
the notebook also has uh, drawings of the commune logo, drawings of uh, suggestions for community architecture and suggestions for clothing. Um, it's sort of it's a little piece of art in itself, and it was also exhibited as such initially. The notebook, um, I think, has been important for the Bishan commune as a foundational document uh, and as a way to spread the, uh, the basic ideas of the Bishan commune. Um, but I think it's also important to underscore that the Bishan commune changed despite of the ideas in the notebook. And I think the Bishan commune got its own life regardless of the notebook. Otherwise, I'm not sure that it could have succeeded in the manner that it did. But um, in its initial form, it was a way to create an egalitarian community of like-minded using mutual aid as a basis for exchange of knowledge and skills. Um, so what about the Bishan commune itself? Um, how did the project unfold? Can you tell our listeners a bit more about this? Yeah. So one of the first things that uh, owning and also Suwating, who has now become part of the project, one of the things that they did was to uh, conduct this large-scale art festival in Bishan called uh, the Bishan Harvestival. And Harvestival is a contraction of the words harvest and festival. Uh, so in 2000, 2011, they did the first Bishan Harvestival, and it was like this huge event with lots of art projects, visiting artists, artworks, and academics. And it was conducted in close collaboration with the local authorities. So the festival gathered lots of artists and intellectuals to discuss various issues related to the rural areas. What the Harvestival didn't do was to uh, include local villagers. It was, they were not included in these conversations about what were the issues in the rural areas. Most of the time, most of sorting and owning's time was spent on negotiating with local authorities on what they were allowed to do and what they couldn't do. Um, so actually, during the first Harvestival, the participants were perhaps not so much the villagers as they were the local authorities. Um, so the Bishan Harvestival was criticized by some of the um, participating artists, academics, and activists. And the critique of the Harvestival was primarily aimed at its lack of engagement with surrounding community. Um, so the following year, the Harvestival, they are um, doing a new Harvestival, uh, 2012, and this Harvestival ends up getting shut down by the authorities. And there are several stories about why this happened, some involving a journalist, some involving uh, an exhibition that displayed the downside of the Chinese development project and a photo exhibition. Either way, both some local villagers and the local authorities were dissatisfied with how the project developed. And so they decided to shut down the Harvestival. So some of the, the, the somehow the first couple of years of the Bishan commune display an example of how not to do it. Uh, well, and I think it can be perfectly fine to do art festivals in the countryside, but if your purpose is to build lasting mutual relationships and exchange of knowledge and skills in some kind of structure of equality, then perhaps uh, other ways of going about the issue would have been better. At least it didn't work for the Bishan commune. 
so the critique of the first two years, I think actually in some sense it was a good that it came so quickly because it really changed the Bijan commune thoroughly. Uh, and this also adds to the importance of researching these projects over time. So to understand how they change and why they change and what they can become, even though they have been critiqued heavily. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Yeah, and and it's very clear from your book that you have committed to that um, extensive and long-term research in order to get the larger picture, including both the critique and the downfalls of the project, in addition to to the advantages and and the very the benefits and the wins, the celebrations that that have that owning and his project have have um, faced. Um, but let's talk more about owning, but also the other urbanites that um, came to influence the aesthetics and architecture of, of Bishan. Um, how did this happen? And what does it mean when the architecture of a village changes um, when a project like this and intellectuals and urbanites come to come to reside and um, organize um, events and so forth? What happens to the architecture of the village? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in 2013, Owning moved to Bishan together with his family uh, and the project and the Bishan project really changed from the sense that a lack of art and culture were the primary concerns to a situation where the development of the economy and the local architecture became the main driving force. Um, so this and this was actually also very much a result of dialogue with the villagers in Bishan. So in my book, I argue that Owning entered what I term the a uh, rural contract, um, which is that, so in a couple of years into the project, the Bishan project appeared to be accepting the requirements of the local authorities and the villagers. Uh, and I argue that this can be understood twofold. Uh, as a result from the local and central authorities to abandon the more politically problematic aims of the project and focus more on the neutral aim, neutral aim of economic development as well as the direct result of engagement with the local community of villagers very much preoccupied with the lack of economic possibilities. So the Bishan project collaborated with the local government on more or less amiable terms, but at the same time, they continued to work with an agenda of mutual aid and active engagement with the villagers. So in this sense, it's very clear that the socially engaged art project answered back and sort of wants take takes ownership over the project and wants it to be something that they can also use. Um, and in terms of the, the architecture and the infrastructure of the village, um, some of my central arguments is tied to how I see the state as taking over the village and the tourism infrastructure to their own benefit. And that's how I see the artists as front runners of the urbanization of rural China whether they like it or not. And I will explain what I mean by this now. Um, so in terms of changing architecture and infrastructure, one example is the Bishan bookstore. And the Bishan bookstore was located in an old forefather temple. And another example is the school of tillers, 
which was a large compound next to Owning's house. I'll talk a bit about the bookstore first. So I see the introduction of the Bichon bookstore in 2014 into the Bichon commune project scheme as a shape-shifting event. And by this, I mean that it's here that the utopian ideas of the Bichon, com Bichon commune transform into a Lepardian Trojan horse. So the Bichon commune is taking a leap into the village through the shape of a traditional forefather temple. So it was actually the village committee that offered the Bichon bookstore to rent the old forefather temple for free and thus let the Bichon commune occupy a central architectural structure in the village. So in this way, the, the village committee themselves invited in the Trojan horse of the Bichon commune. Um, so with the school of tillers, they, they also represent a very important change for the Bichon commune. Um, it was opened in 2015 and it functioned as a gallery, an activity space, a residency, a shop, and it was located right next to Owning's house in the village and it opened in 2015. So, and what happened with the School of Tillers was that a large group of volunteers became involved in the project. Uh, and these volunteers became really important. And I think this was the time where the project also became larger than just Owning or Zorting. And we had other people sort of involved in a set, uh, in a way that they uh, had their own relationships to the villagers. Um, so the volunteers built this, there was a strong network of volunteers uh, and between the volunteers and the villagers uh, and the ideas of the Bichon commune started, started to spread in the village. In the village. So the volunteers or the commune members, we can call it, were crucial in this regard. Um, so sort of as the soldiers hidden in the belly of the Trojan horse, the volunteers swarmed into the village and formed new relationships to different villagers, some of whom were university village officials serving in the nearby village committees. And I think, so we, so it's young people coming from, from the urban areas and it's young people that are studying to become village official and they meet in this small village and they connect and they become good friends and they somehow uh, represent, uh, so the, the university village officials are part of the local village committees. So they are sort of the lowest entrance gate into the Chinese authorities. So this was also a way that the ideas of the Bixian commune spread to other levels of, of, uh, of uh, society in rural China. Um, so it's also around this time that the Bixian commune becomes much more than just owning's project as these volunteers take on their own projects and forge their own relationships to villagers of Bixian. And I think this is very important and it's something that is often overlooked when talking and when discussing the Bichan commune is always very often through the lens of owning that we talk about the project. Okay, but returning to the changing infrastructure and the changing architecture. So the success of the Bichan commune also attracted swarms of tourists that could now visit the Bichan bookstore or they could go to events at the School of Tillers. So the School of Tillers and the Bichan Bookstore and Owning's Buffalo Institute did somehow function as Trojan horses uh, full of soldiers. So the Trojan horse had its effect on the local villagers in the sense of a new idea of the way that the village could develop economically. So they were interested in, so it was no longer just economic development in, of any kind, but it would be nice if it was educational projects or art or culture projects. So in the Bishan project, in this iteration was the subversive power that uh, Lucy Lepar describes. Uh, 
um, as they managed to get groups of villagers over on their side. However, um, what happened when everybody could see the success of these uh, of the Bijan bookstore and the School of Tillers was that the housing prices began to rise in the, in the village. Um, and these beautiful old traditional houses in Bijan became desired objects that could be purchased for investment purposes. So what happened was that basically all of the old traditional houses in Bijan were sold and they were all often sold to wealthy urban people and often people that had some sort of connection to owning and sorting or that had heard about the the the, the development that Bishan was going through. So in this sense, the economic foundation of the village really changed and suddenly some some of the villagers, not all of them, but some of them could make money off their old houses that they usually, that they perhaps did not, no longer lived in or used. Um, so that really changed the setting of Bishan. And I think in that sense, the Trojan horse turned on the Bishan project and became the Trojan horse of a capitalist style development. And the artists became pioneers of an elaborate and complex rural gentrification project. So, yeah, I argue that the artists became front runners of the urbanization of rural China because they brought in urban resources and capital that basically altered the face and pace of Bishan. And also, as many of these houses were sold, many of them were developed into hotels and hostels and guest houses and the like. So, and I think uh, in this sense, the Trojan horse is very much a subversive power but it's uh, subverting the artist project itself and not the community it was trying to alter. And I think the Trojan horse turn of the Bishan commune turned into something something that owning and sorting could, could really not control. And the question is whether they were ab really able to control it in the first place, because it was definitely a, a development that was taking place in the village already, because it was because it is already placed in this uh, tourist area. So what also happened was that this rising exchange value gave rise to more conflicts with key person within the local county and the local village administrations. Um, so the increasing support base in the village, as well as the opinions on how to run the village, uh, worried the local leadership. And the Bishan project entered a period of increased level of conflict and a battle over the resources of the village. Thank you for that, Mai. So fascinating to hear the number, just the waves that this project has created, both in terms of volunteers coming in and the friendships that are formed, but also the darker side of um, development and gentrification. And it's just so ironic that um, what you dis what you were earlier describing, the critique of this kind of developmentalist regime, um, then became um, the tactics of of um, urbanites coming there to the to the village, changing the prices. Of local residents' homes and changing the use of these homes as well. Um, so there's very clear critique here, but perhaps you could um, tell us a bit more about the critique that the Bishan, sorry, that, that the critique of the Bishan commune has set within the frame of discussions um, around socially engaged art. How have Chinese citizens critiqued and disputed the project? Um, as as we have already discussed the. Uh... Uh, critique of the Bishan project existed all, all along. Right from the beginning, there were artists and academics that criticized the Bishan commune. Um, the academic critique 
was focused on the Bichon commune lacking its own means of production, and therefore it could not be able to create the circumstances for an anarchist community. Um, and this, it was a critique of the lack of ways to redirect the economy of the houses to the villagers. So it might be that the, the tourism industry created an economic development uh, in the village, but it was only benefiting a few people and not the entire village community as such. Um, so, another, but another point of critique was also the lack of engagement with local villagers, and I think that these were points of critique that Owning and other people involved in the Bishan Commune continuously reflected upon and tried to propose ideas and solutions to. But the critique really erupted with the Bishan Commune dispute the summer of 2014, and I was actually in Bishan when it erupted. I was doing my fieldwork and it was quite an intense time. Um, so it erupted on the social media and everybody would sort of discuss the Bishan commune um, and what they thought of it. And most of them had, not, had never been to Bishan. I didn't really know anything about it, but it was a big deal also at Bishan. Um, so, but the critique uh, that initially started the Bishan commune dispute was focused on Owning's privileged position uh, versus the villagers. So the critique argued that owning boasted uh, cultural capital in a way that created a distance between owning and the villagers. And also that the developments that had happened in the village didn't really reach the villagers. Um, and I think some of these points definitely make sense. Uh, owning was an international renowned artist and he definitely had access to certain resources and connections to government levels. But, but then again, I don't think this is the entire story. So it doesn't account for the fact that several people were deeply involved uh, in the Bishan project. Yeah, and that also, and that this critique of Bishan also treat the villagers of Bishan as speaking with one voice. And I'm thinking of expressions like, the villagers of Bishan all want this or that, or all think this or that. But the villagers were simply very different people. And some of them wanted more artists in the village. Some wanted economic prosperity. Some wanted street lightning. Some wanted job opportunities. And some just didn't want for Bishan to become a tourist attraction and so forth. So there were many different ways and relations within the Bishan commune. Uh, and also in relation specifically to the Bishan commune, some villagers were very engaged and some were intrigued and participated sometimes. Some thought that they were annoying and some just didn't know actually, or some just didn't care about the project. Like in most neighborhoods, I think this would be the case. Um, but it, but nevertheless, the Bishan commune took place in Bishan village and it changed the architecture and economic foundation of Bishan, but not all villages were involved. But the ones that were involved were very supportive and critical of what took place. So it was a, an ongoing conversation. <clears throat> and here I also really want to give credit to the volunteers again that came to Bishan as part of the School of Tillers and they were connected in the, vill in the village on a whole other scale. Um, but in the end, and I think much of this, we can talk a lot about this critique, um, but in the end, it wasn't Oning's village it wasn't the volunteers village, it wasn't the villagers village, it was the party's village. And that was what eventually led to the closure of the project.
Can you tell us more about the closure? Um, I think that's such a relevant point. It's, it is the party's village and that can that's the case for any village, for any um, urban space across the country. But what actually led to the closure of Bishan commune? Um, so the closure of the Bishan commune is closely related to the relationship to the local authorities. Um, so in terms of government support, the local power holders, they were well aware of the potential benefits of the arrival of the Bishan commune and the arrival of these urban artists. And they definitely wanted to tap into the resource that the artists represent, urban resources and access to to other uh, to resources. Um, and the project was to begin with, to some extent, sanctioned and supported financially by local authorities. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, so the Bishan, Bishan village is located right next to the Yellow Mountains, and uh, it, which is one of the most visited tourist attractions in China, meaning there are so many tourists in this area already, and they just somehow had to be lured into Bishan. And I think, and the local government were definitely aware of this. Um, so the Bishan project came in handy uh, for the local government and the quest for economic development. So the local government displayed support for the Bishan project, but always on their own terms. Um, and as I said earlier, it's difficult to talk about one relationship to the local authorities or one relationship to the villagers. So some villagers and some local officials were very supportive of the Bishan project, some were not. But all of these relations, despite the Bishan commune was shut down by central authorities in Beijing in early 2016, and Oning and his wife and children had to leave Bishan with a day's notice. And it was it happened in a way so that I think they, they turned off the power to Oning's house. Nobody told him that he could no longer be in the village. They just turned off the power. Um, and Oning's wife had just given birth to their child. And so it was really, and it was winter, it was cold, and with no electricity, it was difficult to stay in the village. So they went to a friend's house and stayed for a night, and then they left the village for good. So there was, they, were, they were forced to leave the village very abruptly. It's not entirely clear what led to the closure, um, but in the months up to the closure, the level of conflict had intensified, and local authorities had visited the School of Tillers on several locations, and they had confiscated goods that um, the School of Tillers had sold on behalf of some of the villagers, and they had also confiscated some illegal books and, and other things. Um, but perhaps, so, and why was this? So perhaps the ideas of the Bishan commune had become too influential in the village, perhaps Owning had lost support of some of the local rural power holders. We know from the Bishan dispute that the leader of the local village committee was critical of owning, that he wanted owning to pay for more uh, services in the village, pave roads and street lighting and so forth. We also know that the party secretary of E County, the county where Bishan is located, he had been very supportive of the Bishan commune and this party secretary was promoted to another uh, another place and was replaced by a new person. And this new person did not have the Bijan commune as his prestige project. Or perhaps this new party secretary interpreted the pressure from the central government differently. <clears throat> and also, I think that this new party secretary did not feel like speaking 
uh, Bishan Commune's case higher up in the system. Or it might also be that it was just the central government that didn't want the experiment to continue further. So it was not the first time that Oning had been in conflict with the authorities and had had his projects closed down. So I think the answer is to be found somewhere in the mishmash between these possible reasons. Anyways, the consequences was that the village leadership and the party effectively limited the ways the Bishan project could develop into something beneficial to all villagers in Bishan. And after, after the closure, all the villagers were invited to a meeting where they were informed that the Bishan project was politically incorrect and that the leadership of the party should be strengthened in the village. And this means, of course, that mentions of the Bishan project suddenly became very sensitive and people became afraid of the consequences of having a close relationship to the project. So, and this was sort of the end of the Bishan commune. Because I would still, I would really like to insist that the project and all the good people involved in it did create lasting relations and experiences that matter and that still matter in the village and beyond. Um, so I think on a smaller scale, the Bishan commune has been influential and has contributed to this feeling of a loosely organized network of artists, intellectuals, and villagers that has a significant affiliation to the rural. And I think that Bishan project has created new routes for sharing and new possible points of contact. And these remain despite the closure of the project. And this is also connected to the volunteers again, because they carry the ideas of the Bishan commune with them. Thank you. So fascinating to hear about the kind of political workings of this project and also um, the number of kind of mysteries that, that continue to linger on with, with how decisions are made um, within the within the political system of China. And also um, very encouraging to hear the more optimistic note that um, that just because a project closes down doesn't mean that it's um, that it's forever dead, that that rather instead what's been created um, continues to live through people and relations and ideas that have been formed. Um, but perhaps you could tell us a bit more about some of the developments in Bishan since the closure of, of the commune. And also I'm interested more broadly, what are the remnants of socially engaged art in China? Um, if I'm not mistaken, Zhuojing works in Guizhou nowadays and has his own um, kind of not commune, but um, has continued projects there. And um, of course, takes on similar um, inspirations and motivations um, from Bishan. Um, so I'm wondering on a more general scale, what does socially engaged art, what form does it come in in China today? Um, so after, if we talk about just Bishan, um, then after the closure of the Bishan project, the village has been going through a process of beautification, you could say. So the local village committee has put an effort into planting flowers and repaving the inner village roads and making a new garbage system and so forth. And, and also what we see is that small guest houses and hotels have popped up all over the village. And there's this beautiful map that sort of, when you enter the village, that tells you where all these local guest houses are located. So it's that, so Bishan looks like a very beautiful tourist village in Bishan, in the uh, E County. Um, in terms of the Bishan commune, the Bishan bookstore still exists. 
but the School of Tillers have closed down. And the reason that Bichon Bookstore can exist is that it also just has like a commercial scope. So it's also just a bookstore that sells books and notebooks and other things. Um, so so this this can uh, this can remain. And owning was never financially involved in the bookstore. It's owned by Chen Xiaohua, who's also who also owns the avant-garde bookstore, my library avant-garde in Nanjing. Um, so this the bookstore remains, but the school of tillers have closed down because that was very closely associated with owning. So commercial entities exist. Um, in terms of remnants of socially engaged art. What we see is that the practice of the Bishan project has migrated or morphed into what we can call rural reconstruction through art. Um, and this is an art practice that is much closer aligned with the local authorities in a given locality. And as you mentioned, Zhuajing is very active in this within this type of practice. Zhuajing, um, he has been making art projects together with local governments in remote areas across China, though not in Bishan. Um, so even though Zhuajing still has a commercial store in Bishan, it is uh, politically sensitive to do any events or anything that could resemble the Bishan commune or a socially engaged art project. But he's very active in other villages in China. Um, and I think of this practice of rural reconstruction through art as what I term Guanxi aesthetics, um, so Guanxi, as most of the people who work on China know, refers to relationships, but it can also mean to have good connections. Um, and I think this, so the term Guanxi aesthetics is related to the way that the practice of rural reconstruction through art is, has to have very good connections to local governments in order to exist. Um, in terms of uh, owning he no, he's no longer involved in any projects in China. He has relocated to the States. Um, thank you so much for that. Really, really interesting to hear about kind of what lingers on and, and um, what people learn from this as well <clears throat> to, in order to keep going. Um, my, I feel like I've taken up so much of your time, but before we end today's episode, I wanted to ask you about what your current projects are and what have you been doing since the Bishan Commune and the practice of socially engaged art in rural China has, what you've been doing since it's been published. Yeah, um, so after the Bishan project, I've actually spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, uh, where I was offered a postdoc position at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Um, and I was to do, uh, to do a research project on socially engaged art in Hong Kong. Um, and I arrived in Hong Kong just as the 2019 protest movement exploded. Uh, and I was still doing research into socially engaged art, but the explosion of this movement somehow prompted me to dive into the visuality of the protest movement. Um, some of you might know that during the movement, the, the city of Hong Kong was covered in protest posters. They were basically, they were everywhere on all walls in the entire city. Um, and I started taking photographs of these posters and that just started making me think about what it means when an entire city is covered in protest posters and, and how this shaped the protest movement. Um, so currently I'm thinking a lot about the production of protest posters and the protest walls as archives and as ways of archiving uh, and remembering a certain version of Hong Kong. And, and I have an article coming out soon in Journal of Visual Culture on this archival imaginary of the Hong Kong 
protest movement. Yeah. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I will make sure to keep my eyes open for that. And also, I just want to point out, I mean, that that's um, that, that I mean, the very fact that that this book, the Bishan Commune and the Practice of Socially Engaged Art in Rural China, that's also a kind of documentation of, of a particular time in um, Chinese history, of in a particular village, of a particular group who've come together with a particular set of ideas, and they really acted upon it in very, what, what you've mentioned, radical ways, but also in ways that really did, um, you know, form relations and really push forward um, kind of how how far artists can can work through socially engaged art and practices in in a particular time of Chinese history. Um, so that your book as well is a fantastic kind of documentation of that, and it's just so fascinating to hear that you've continued to do um, do a kind of archival of these posters in Hong Kong. I will for sure make sure that I, I, I look into that article when it comes out. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you so much, my Coraline. This has been a wonderful talk and um, wonderful book and. Um, um, I absolutely look forward to hearing more about what kind of research comes out in the near future. Yeah, thank you, Suvi, for inviting me. Um, and thank you for our listeners for tuning into New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>